Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 17 through uh, 32, and the title today is Be Renewed, Be Renewed. So what, what I want to do is read these verses, and, uh, and then we will pray and unpack them together. So the Ephesians is, is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, and uh, he's instructing them on what God uh, has done in them through Christ, and, and then how they live as a result. So let's just read it together. Are you ready? Ephesians 4.17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, practicing every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the moments that we're sharing in your word today. And I pray that your spirit would move, that your spirit would speak, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive from you today a word from your word. I pray that you would guide my speech as I seek to preach your word uh, accurately, God. And so come and have your way. Transform us into your image. Help us to be renewed by your spirit today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's the thing. Whenever you become a Christian, uh, you become a new creation. You, you, you become entirely new. The old is gone. The new has come. And we've, we've said before that God did not, uh, does not want us. Um, he's, God's not in the business of making bad people good or, or even, as many of us, making nice people nicer people. Like He's not just wanting to make a bunch of nicer people. He's wanting, us to, he's wanting to make nice people new. He's wanting to give us an entirely new life. And I want us to be clear that whenever you uh, come to Christ, at the moment you uh, receive Jesus and place your faith in Him and repent of your sin and, and place the weight of your life and bow a knee to Lord Jesus, however you want to say it, in that moment you are justified. And it is as if you have never sinned before God. And you are forgiven and he transforms you, and, he, and, and you are right with God. And there's nothing we can do to earn that. It is by grace through faith that we are made right with God. There's nothing we can do to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. There's nothing you can do to lose it, okay? And, um, and so I want to be clear as we talk today that our salvation is a gift from God, and we've already learned this in this study in Ephesians. But um, when you're saved, you get a new identity. But you have to learn to live in that new identity. So you, you see, whenever on um, March 14th, 2015, my identity changed. I, I went from a bachelor 
to a husband. Can you believe I remember that date, right? Well, it's Pi Day, 3.1415, so that's easy enough. And uh, so it's Pi Day, and, um, but in that moment, on that day, when I said I do, my identity changed, and now I'm a husband. And, uh, but it took me some time to learn how to live like a husband, right? Do you think as soon as I said I do, all of a sudden I got it figured out? I know how to do this whole husband thing. Um, no, the, the, some things had to change. I could no longer spend my money how I wanted to spend it on what I wanted to spend it on, right? Because now I share everything with somebody else. And uh, I could no longer do whatever I want whenever I want and go wherever I want whenever I want because now my schedule affected someone else. And if I want to do something, I'll all of a sudden have to have a conversation about that. I... <laughs> I no longer get to eat what I want when I want. <laughs> because now I'm subject to somebody else who has opinions and preferences and desires on where to eat or what to eat. And um, look, here's the thing. I am, so hopefully over the years, we've been married five years, not very long, especially compared to many of you even in the room. So we're still new. We're like a toddler, right? We're, we're walking and talking and stumbling around. But gotten a little bit better, been learning to live in this identity as husband, think like a husband, behave like a husband. But I am no more a husband today than I was on day one. Like I was five years in, I'm still the same husband as five minutes in. My identity is fixed, but I've learned to live out my new identity. I think this is what Johnny Cash was saying in his first uh, number one hit song, I Walk the Line. Um, I love Johnny Cash. When I first learned how to play guitar, my first song was a Buddy Holly song, but um, my next many songs were Johnny Cash, primarily because they were kind of easy. All right, it's like talking and playing three chords. And so, uh, but I, play, I learned a lot of his songs and this is a favorite, I Walk the Line. He wrote this song uh, backstage right after like being married. So he's newly married, he writes this song, and this is what he says, since you've been mine, I walk the line. I'll admit that I'm a fool for you. Since you've been mine, I walk the line. And so similarly, in Ephesians, what we see is that they've begun a new relationship with Christ, and because of that, they've got to learn to walk the line. Or uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, you must walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And so now that I have my new identity, all of a sudden, I've got to begin to learn to live within it, live a life devoted to this Savior. And what we see in the text today, that this requires us living a life where we're putting off some things and putting on some things. This is our life. Welcome to the life of a Christian. You wake up and you put off the old self every day. And you put on this new self. And uh, so that's really kind of the outline today. We're going to put off and then we're going to put on. And uh, the first thing that he starts talking about is the things that we put off. So we put off the old life. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as... What do you mean? He's speaking to Gentiles. You must no longer walk. And we, and we learned that that word walk is what Paul uses to refer to the, what, your way of life. But your way of life is no longer the way the Gentiles what is he saying here? Well, Gentiles, by and large, were unbelievers. They were pagans. But what he's also saying here is that your primary identity is not in your culture that you came from or the color of your skin or the community in which you live. Like, your primary identity is not these things of the earth. Now you have a new identity, and your identity is in Christ, and so we're going to uh, no longer live like we used to live before we knew 
Jesus. Isn't that powerful? In a moment where it seems like our personal identity is everything in life. Paul is saying that is secondary to your primary identity of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And what he, he goes on to talk about um, their old state of life. It affected their minds. It affected their feelings, their emotions. And it affected their actions. Let's look at it together. He says, no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Futility. That's not quite a compliment that he's giving these Gentile people. Like you used to be futile in thinking. But they lived useless, worthless, meaningless lives. What he's saying is that you weren't thinking right. Like your whole idea of what the goal in life should be is wrong. You might be on track to get whatever you want to get in life, but your whole way of thinking is wrong. It's like if you were to try to get somewhere and, uh, and you pull out a map, I know you're never going to do that. No one ever uses maps, but, but okay, let's bring it today. Maybe it's, uh, have you ever used one of those uh, like, like navigation systems and it's like turn right and there's just a field? And you're like, who programmed this thing? Like, I'm not in the right place and there's no way I can get where I need to go because there's a field where it tells me to turn right. The idea is this, that it's like you're using the wrong map, like you're totally in the wrong place. Your sense of direction is skewed. You're foolish and aiming at a foolish goal. He's using some pretty strong stuff talking to Paul here. What he's saying is that you thought that the goal was to have a really good 70 or 80 years without realizing that, um, that this life is just an on-ramp to eternity. And whenever you get there into eternity and you enter eternity, you're going to realize that, oh man, my whole life was futile, was meaningless, was worthless if I haven't rooted it in something eternal like Christ. And he goes on to say... Um, so, futile in uh, their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. So, he also describes their, their minds, their thinking as darkened. Not only do you have the wrong map, but you're driving down the highway at 100 miles an hour with your lights off. You don't know where you're going, is what he's saying. You don't even know where you're going. It's hard to find your way around when the lights are off. There was a time where um, Jared and I, we went camping on one of these islands. Was it Cat Island? Ship Island? Deer Island thing? That was a long time, a while ago. So we, we take this boat out to Deer Island and uh, decide we're just gonna you know, stay on the beach. And we get to the, to the beach side of the island um, to, stay, to set up our tents, and the wind is so strong. We set up our tent, and it's like, like it's flat on the ground, the tent. And so we're like, okay, um, we don't want to be slapped in the face by our tent all night. Let's move to the other side of the island um, where the wind is calmer, but there's like nowhere to set up. And so it's kind of this brushy area. We set up the tent to stay there that night, and um, so now it's dark, and it's hard to kind of see and uh, before we went to bed that night, we saw this, this tree knee sticking up. You know those things? It's like, this, this, like a root just sticking out of the ground. And we saw that thing and we said, man, I really hope somebody doesn't stub their toe on that thing in the middle of the night. So we go to bed and, of course, in the middle of the night, I get up to go uh, use the restroom at the island. And I get out and I take a good solid stride and my middle toe hits that tree knee. I mean, it like it zeroed right in on that middle toe. And that's the story of how I lost my middle toe. And um, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. It sure felt like it. At that moment, I wish I didn't have a middle toe. But um, 
But the idea is that you can't see where you're going when, you're, when it's dark. And you bump into stuff and you can end up walking off a cliff. And that's what he's saying. You have no sense of direction of where you're going in life. Sin produces a malfunction of the mind. And then he keeps going. So, so your minds were darkened and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due, and he moves to the heart, due to their hardness of heart, due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous. They become callous. So he says, um, what does callous mean? So if you have a callous on your hands or as a guitar player on your fingers or something of that nature, um, what it is is that you had a repetitive motion it, it, for a long period of time, and uh, at, at first it hurt, it stung, it was painful, but then after a period of time, uh, some dead skin cells formed to produce a callus to where you no longer felt the pain that you used to feel. What he's saying is that unbelievers, they feel conviction um, but they don't respond to it, and therefore they harden their heart, and it becomes like a callus, to where you can't feel anything anymore. That happens playing guitar. When you first learn to play guitar, it just hurts, 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 and eventually it doesn't even hurt anymore. And the thing is that that happens to our hearts. You do something that you know you're not supposed to do and you feel the sting. It's kind of like the first time you've ever lied. When you remember that when you were a child, you told that first lie to your parents and it, if you were like me, it was like gut-wrenching, like I can't believe I just said that. And, uh, but then the second time it's a little easier. And the third time it's a little bit easier. And the fourth time it's a little bit easier. And what happens is um, you just begin to not feel the conviction of the Spirit anymore because you've put a callus on your heart. And this happens in our lives. And that's, what, that's why um, the whole gauge of am I convicted about it is not a good spiritual gauge for whether it's right or wrong. Um, because you could have calloused your heart to where you can do a sin and not feel bad about it at all. And just because you don't feel bad about it doesn't mean it's not wrong. It just means you have a calloused heart. What do you do about a calloused heart? Um, well, if you have calloused fingers like a guitar player, uh, if you stop doing that thing, they begin to soften up again. Did you know that? Like, I don't play guitar every week like I used to anymore, and my fingers are tender. I pulled the guitar out this week just to play for fun in my office, and it was painful. And so the idea here is that if you, want, if you have a calloused heart, if you have a hard heart, the way you soften your heart is you quit doing the thing that creates that callus, and then your heart will begin to soften. We put it off, is what he's saying. We put it off. Verse 19, let's keep going. They've been calloused and given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to, to practice every kind of impurity. So when our minds are darkened and our hearts have become calloused, we become greedy to practice every uh, kind of impurity and give ourselves over to sensuality. So greed here is an increasing desire for more. So now it's not just that I've done the sin, but now it's I begin to desire it. And I don't just desire that, I desire something a little worse. And I want to go a little deeper and a little further. And uh, we kind of wonder how come our society has seemed to have gone so far from what it used to be in the standard of the way things should be biblically. Why does it seem like we are now celebrating all types of debauchery in our society? And it's because we've come, become calloused as a collective heart in our nation. We've become calloused and so therefore we've got to go push beyond because we're greedy for every type of sensuality. Look at verse 22. It says, how, why is this happening? In verse 22 he says, put off your old self 
which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. So why is my mind darkened? Why is my heart hard? Um, why am I pursuing these greed, like greedy for impurity and sensuality? Why is this? It's because I have deceitful desires. The things I desire are lying to me. That uh, these lusts are deceitful because they promise joy, but then fail to deliver it. Have you noticed that? Is it just me? Like whenever you're tempted to do something, it's like you're promised that this thing is going to be good for you, but then after you do it, you feel this tremendous guilt and weight of, you know, I, I, I just did that. I can't believe I did that. And it overpromises and underdelivers the promise of, I haven't been happy. I haven't been happy in a long time just about since we said I do. And uh, you know what? I think I'll be happier with someone else. And the deceitful desire, the promise is, if you leave them, if you get the divorce, then you'll be happy. But in my experience, in the people I've walked with, who have been at that place, their lives have gone from crummy to horrible. It overpromises and underdelivers. And even statistics studies show this that five years after a divorce, you're less happy than the people who decide to stay together. Same thing with sexual temptation. That's going to be fulfilling. That's going to be enjoyable. That's going to be pleasurable. And then it wrecks your life. Left to ourselves, we are vile. And uh, though some people may be less vile than others, uh, we still all need Christ. We still all need uh, Jesus. And uh, the good news here is that uh, God can transform anyone by His grace. So maybe you feel like you're stuck in something that I've maybe described today. and God can transform you. The point here is clear. That if God made us new, we are to live altogether new lives. We are to uh, think and feel and respond and act differently than we used to. And it's God's Spirit that enables us to do that. And so if our lives do not look any different after we've trusted Jesus, we need to look at our lives and say, is there something that I need to be putting off? All right, and then, and then we move into put on the new life. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the image and likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. First, he says, the way you learned Christ. But that's not the way you learned Christ. This is so interesting because Christianity is not about learning about uh, someone. It's about learning, it's about learning a person. That we're learning Christ. We're, we're, we're getting to know Him as a person, and, um, and you can't be transformed until you trust Him and are converted by Him. Like, you can't be renewed until you're nude. Is there a better way to say that? Can, can somebody say that differently? No? Okay. But the point is, you can't be revived unless you're vived. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's better. <laughs> you, uh, you've got to, to put on the new self. We've got to know Christ. We've got to learn Christ. See, Christianity is not about um, a, a moral rule keeping. It's not about religious attendance. It's not about the warm fuzzies of a, a, a spiritual experience. It's not about believing in a God. It's not about doing good things. It's not about knowing facts about Christ. It's about knowing Him personally. 
John 17, 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's about, this is eternal life, knowing God and Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And you must know Him personally. You must know Him personally. It's something you must do. There was a little girl who went to go get a flu shot. And, uh, and the nurse asked her, which arm do you want it in, sweetie? And she said, mama's arm. <laughs> well, the reality is that mama can't uh, believe for you. Mama can't have faith for you. That you must do it for yourself. Do you know Christ personally? Have you learned Christ? Verse 23 says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed. Is this an active term or a passive term? It's passive. This is something that Jesus is renewing your mind. He's not saying... Um, renew your mind. He's saying, be renewed. Jesus is doing it. This is an ongoing transformation in our life uh, by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. God does the work in us, but we have a responsibility to set our minds on the things that are above. Romans 12, 2 says, uh, do not be conformed to the world, put it off, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the, the, the battleground starts in the mind. J. Oswald Sanders says this, the, man, the mind of a man is the battleground on which every moral and spiritual battle is fought. It starts in the mind. Your mind drives your behavior. John Stott says, self-control is primarily mind control. Leslie Flynn says this, every kidnapping was once a thought. Every extramarital affair was once a fantasy. The battle starts in your mind. And so we must renew our mind. And since the mind is so important, we must renew it, we must wash it, we must clean it with the word of God. I just, I mean, a thing I've shared with you before, but I had a friend who uh, came to Christ and he just was radically saved, just transformed his whole life, but he was in the midst of an unbelieving family. And there was one time they had like an intervention with him to say, hey, you're kind of too Jesus-fied right now. And, and they told him, you've been brainwashed. And he said, well, good, because my brain needed washing. It was dirty. It needed washing. And that's the, that's the idea here that um, we clean our mind with the word of God. We meditate on that which is good and right and true in order to live this new life. And so this is the Christian life, taking off the old, putting on the new. Every day, you've got to wake up. I'm going to put off the old, and I'm going to put on the new. I'm going to put off the old, and I'm going to put on the new. Every day, putting off the old. I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Put on the new. I'm going to replace it with good things and, and true things and right things. I'm going to put off the old and put on the new. And um, it's a battle, but um, there's this uh, long-distance swimmer, Diana Nyad. Have you heard of her? At the time of this feat, she was 64 years old. She was a 64-year-old long-distance swimmer, and she was the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage nonstop. From Cuba to Florida. This was a 110-mile journey. It took her 53 hours nonstop to swim this distance without a shark cage. It's pretty remarkable. Um, when she was interviewed afterwards and she was asked, like, how, how, what was it like? How did she do it? She told them that, you know, I was hallucinating. You imagine just go 53 hours without sleep. Like I was hallucinating, uh, having a difficult time mentally, uh, 
vomiting because of all the salt water she was ingesting. But she said, whenever I got to the place where it was like, I just was so out of it, I just had to simply tell myself, put the left arm in the water, push Cuba back. Put the right arm in the water, pull Florida forward. Put the left arm in the water, push Cuba back. Put the right arm in the water, pull Florida seaman. And that's how she got through. Just one stroke at a time. Push Cuba, pull Florida. And uh, that's the picture here, is that when things are difficult, when things are messy, when it's hard, when you feel like you can't do anymore, I'm going to put off the old self, I'm going to put on the new self today. This is what we see in the picture of baptism. It's beautiful that we have this baptism today, and that's the image of baptism, that we've, we've buried the old man with Christ, and we are raised to newness of life. We've put off the old, buried it, and we're, we're putting on the new. And um, this is so beautiful. So, the, the, la- the next few verses, he tells us uh, what this transformed looks like, what this life looks like. So he's told us, put off the old, put on the new, but now he says, so practically speaking, what does that look like? Um, first, as we're getting into these verses, starting in verse 25, um, a couple of things that I want us to understand as we unpack these. One is that these things are individual, but they're relational, meaning that they affect people. He's going to show us that these things are in the context of a community of faith. And so your sinful choices, your negative choices, they they negatively impact the people around you, just as your righteous choices positively impact the people around you. And so that's one thing that we see is that it's relational, and then we also see this, that he puts a negative first, and then the positive. He starts with what to put off, and then he moves to what to put on. And um, so the goal here is not just to say no to sin, but it's to say yes to God. The Christian life is not just about, I don't drink, and I don't chew, and I don't smoke, and I don't run with girls who do. I think I messed that up, didn't I? Let me try again like it's new for you. I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with girls who do. <laughs> All right, that was the joke. It's not just about putting off the old things and avoiding sin, but it's about saying yes to Jesus, choosing the things that please the Lord, making good choices. And so that's what we're going to see today. All right, well, we're going to have to try to move through these quickly because you've already taken up too much time in the service today. So verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first thing is here, replace lying with truth-telling. This is falsehood versus truth. The old self bends the truth. The old self is someone who lies on their taxes and, and lies on a resume to puff themselves up and And it's a white lie to not hurt someone's feelings. And it's a a lie to make ourselves look better. And um, big lies and little lies, all lies are from the devil. And that's the old life. So he says, put it away. Put away all falsehood. Here's a couple of things. Uh, God hates lying. You know that? The Bible says that God hates lying. He doesn't hate liars. He loves you. But he hates when you lie. You know why? Because it says that Satan is the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. So when you tell the truth, you're imitating God, but whenever you tell a lie, you are imitating Satan. And there's no good that comes from it. Um, God's people are truth-tellers. Why? Why are we truth-tellers? He says, because, verse 25, because you are members of one another. You're members of one another. There's the relational aspect. We depend on each other to love each other. And lying harms the body of Christ. If my eyes told my hand that the iron wasn't hot, and my hand touched the iron, that harms the whole body. You see? So this little lie that you're telling over here that you think doesn't hurt anybody, it actually affects the whole body of Christ. Falsehood hurts unity, but truth 
strengthened unity. And uh, I've just noticed um, studying for this is, is, this is my goal for you. That just this knowledge that we're to put away falsehood, and I think we know this, but just a reminder, put away lying, replace it with truth-telling, that this would just allow the Spirit to just begin to speak to you whenever you tell those little lies. Because I, I don't necessarily think that many of you are probably huge liars. You're just those little liars. You're just little liars, right? And so you just tell those little white lies, these little things here. And for me, it's ha- it happens in my own life where I like exaggerate something or I lie for a joke or something like that. And it's like, now the Spirit of God is like <laughs> convicting me. And I'm like, ah, you know, I've noticed it in my own life. So that's what I hope for you. That as you leave here, the Spirit of God would just say, Hey, that's a lie. It's not the truth. It's not a big deal, but it's a deal to me. We're truth people. Truth people. Second thing is to replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. The old self holds on to resentment. The new self uh, doesn't harbor anger. Um, The Bible does talk about righteous anger. Look at verse uh, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Um, So the Bible talks about righteous anger. David in Psalm 119.53 says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. So he has hot indignation or a holy indignation, a righteous anger. For sin, uh, John Piper says that good anger is mingled with grief. We see this in Mark 3, 5, where Jesus was angry with some of the religious leaders because of their hardness of heart, but it grieved him. Jesus expressed his righteous anger when he turned over the tables in the temple. Mark 11. Wilberforce had a holy anger against slavery, Luther had a holy anger against doctrinal corruption. So there is such a thing as righteous anger, holy anger, but there's also unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger is self-defensive, self-serving, out of control. Unrighteous anger leads to murder, leads to jealousy, leads to envy, leads to many other sins. We are commanded to not have unrighteous anger towards anyone. Matthew Matthew Henry says that if we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Can I say that again? This has been helpful for me. If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. So, righteous anger is being angry that millions of unborn babies are murdered every day, or every year in our country. And having a righteous anger that motivates you to pray about it, that motivates you to act about it, that motivates you to reach out and love and serve those who are affected by it. That's a righteous anger. Angry at the sin that moves you to action and prayer. Unrighteous anger is, she burnt the food again. Again. I told her what I wanted for dinner and she made something different. Or, the the baby just won't be quiet. Hush. So there's a righteous anger and there's an unrighteous anger. To keep our anger holy, Paul gives us three reminders. First, he says, do not sin. Okay? What that means is we don't throw a fit. We don't seek revenge. We don't dishonor the name of God. (laughs) This is a a slippery slope, this anger thing. It's best to try to avoid it at all costs. Do not throw a fit. Do not sin. Okay? And then he says, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this is quite a, a passage. Um, you you've know this. But don't let the sun go down on your anger. And some people use this as a, a legalistic uh, way to force people 
into a reconciliation before the right time because I can't let the sun go. It's going down. It's getting time. I don't know what to do. I'm sinning if I let the sun go down on my... Is he saying that you... The sun like, shouldn't go down physically on your anger? Well, th- well, think about this. One, anger isn't physical. And so the sun's not going down on any anger anyways. And then secondly, is he saying that the Eskimos at the North Pole, they can harbor anger for like six months because the sun doesn't go down? Is that what he's saying? No. So he's not wanting us to use, put this in our legalistic belt of things that we can get angry about. Can't let the sun go down on my anger. What he's saying is resolve it quickly. Resolve it quickly. Don't let it fester. Don't let it linger. We should not let anger last very long. It should, the Bible says that the Lord is slow to anger. That um, we should be, our anger should be slow to be aroused and then quickly quenched. Resolve it quickly. And uh, third is uh, do not give an opportunity to the devil. So um, anger, unrighteous anger, that is, has the wrong object, that is lingering too long, gives the devil an opportunity to work to divide you, to divide your relationships, to divide your marriage, to divide your church when we harbor unrighteous anger. Wearsby, um, Warren Wearsby wisely said, anyone can become angry, wrote Aristotle, but to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, is not easy. Okay? So even though the Bible says, be angry and do not sin, and you think... (laughs) You think all your anger is righteous indignation. Let's be, let's, let's tread carefully here. We're going to be careful. Anger should be slowly aroused, quickly resolved, and uh, we should only be angry at sin. All right, third thing is replace stealing with working and giving. Um, this is a taker versus a, a giver. Um, the old uh, person, we have our security in money. And because my security is in money and things, I must get it at all costs. And so um, uh, maybe you don't feel like a, th- a thief. Maybe you don't recognize your... But it is a problem in our culture, in our country. The uh, American Psychological Association did a study on employee theft. Um, and it presented a breakdown on the $8 billion that inventory shortage cost department chain stores uh, every year, $8 billion every year. Why, why are we short $8 billion a year? They, they did this study. Of the losses, 10% of it was due to clerical error, 30% to shoplifting, and the shocking 60%, $16 million a day was by employee theft. Theft by employees. You ever wondered, why are they making me check out myself? What's with this whole self-checkout thing? Here's the math they've done. If we let you check out yourself, 30% of you are going to steal. If we let an employee check check you out, 60% of them are going to steal. It's going to cost us less money if you just check out yourself. It doesn't have to do with Saving on labor, it has to do with saving on theft. Because employees are the biggest uh, issue of theft in stores. Maybe you've never done that, but maybe it's padding expense accounts, um, inadequate income tax reporting, using work uh, time for things that aren't work, ways that we steal and take things that aren't ours to take. But the new self, um, our security is not in things of the earth. Our security is not in money. Our security is secured in eternity in heaven. Our treasure is in heaven. And so uh, we must work honestly. 
Isn't that what it says? Verse 28, let the, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor or work, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the Bible says um, this about work. It says that we're created for work. In the beginning, they were created to tend and keep the garden and to do work. Work is a gift from God, the Bible says. Jesus worked as a carpenter. Paul worked as a tent maker. Work was highly valued in the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible says that we are to work to provide for our families. That those who work hard uh, are blessed and provide for their families. Those who don't work hard come to poverty, the Proverbs says. Now, the Bible says very strongly that those who, don't, who won't work shouldn't eat. Now, he's not saying if you're disabled. He's not saying if you're unable to work. He's saying you're able and you're unwilling. You shouldn't eat. That's kind of strong. <laughs> Why do we work? Why do we work? Well, it says it right here. Labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we, we work so that we'll have something to contribute financially to those in need. Wearsby, uh, I'm sorry, Wesley said, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. Work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. So here are the options that we are presented with. You can steal to get, which is sinful. Just take it, even though it's not yours. That's sinful. You can work to get for yourself. That's not even the goal. That's consumerism. I think that's where most of us fall. I'm working to provide a good life for my family. I'm working to provide a good retirement for me and my wife. I'm working to, to provide an inheritance for my grandchildren. A uh, lot of self-focus. I'm working to provide good experiences for me and my family. I'm working to provide a nice car, a nice house. Like, we're consumeristic thinking, thinkers. That's even not the goal. Final thing is uh, you can work to get in order to give. Now, that's Christianity. You can work to get in order to give. Our mindset should be, how much can I make and how little can I spend so that I can be as generous as I can? So that I can be the person that when someone has a need, I can write the check for that need. How do I get to that place? So that I can not only tithe, that's like the bottom standard, that I can not only tithe, but then I can also be generous above and beyond my tithe. Do we have a New Testament example of this? You know it, you learned it in Sunday school. We, uh, we recently read this in my house in our Bible reading uh, devotions with Rory. It's Zacchaeus, right? You know the song, how it goes? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Zacchaeus, although it's a fun song, he was a real person. And he was a taker. He was a, a thief. People didn't like him, and he didn't have any friends because he stole from people. He was someone who was all about getting for himself. But then when he met Jesus, he became a giver. Not only was he giving back what he stole, but he was giving back four times what he stole, five times what he stole. Not only was he making it right, he was making it overly right. He was generous. And so what we see in the picture of Zacchaeus is when Jesus comes into your life, he transforms the way you handle finances. And you go from getting consumeristic to giving and generous. We must work hard. Fourth thing is replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. Verse 29 says, uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, so this is corrupt talk versus edifying talk. This word corrupt means rotten, putrid, filthy. In the New Testament, it refers to rotten fruit or rotten fish. That's, what, that's the word they're using. Um, now, rotten fruit uh, does not nourish, but it makes you sick, doesn't it? 
Rotten fruit sometimes is an indication that it comes from a diseased tree. Rotten fruit smells horrible and trashy. Have you ever had some rotten fruit in your fridge? You ever had that happen? Um, examples of this rotten fruit, this corrupt talk, they include but are not limited lying. We've already talked about that. Abusive language, vulgar references, vicious and unkind words, gossip, slander, all these things and more would be considered corrupt talk, putrid speech, rotten fruit. Jesus said that we will give an account on the last day for every careless word spoken. Boy, is our generation in trouble with Twitter and Facebook and all of a sudden we've become these people who say things online that we've never say to somebody's face. The Bible says we're going to give an account for every careless word spoken. Words matter. Edifying talk looks like this. Well-chosen words. Constructive talk. Building others up. Encouraging talk. And uh, why is this important? Um, It says here because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is, we get this idea of the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is the Holy, he's the, he is a person, and which means that he uh, thinks and feels and can be hurt or grieved. So in the same sense that when somebody does something to hurt you, it grieves, it hurts you. The Holy Spirit feels the same way when we live in a way, and especially when we talk in a way, in this context, that is not edifying, that is careless, that is vulgar, that is corrupt, that it grieves Him. And in the same way that in a relationship that you might have with your spouse, one of the things that motivates you is, I don't want to hurt that person. I don't want to grieve that person. And so I'm not going to say things that grieve them. I'm not going to do things that grieve them. And I'm going to do things that please them. And it's the same motivation that we should have with the Holy Spirit. That He is a person who lives inside of you. And He's listening. And He can be grieved. He can be hurt. So we we shouldn't be careless. Here's a good question to ask. Um, Well, what I'm about to do or say Please the Spirit or grieve the Spirit? Well, what I'm about to do or say, please the Spirit or grieve the Spirit? And I'm, I just encounter so many people who ask this question. Is it a sin to fill in the blank? Is it a sin to do this thing? That's the wrong question. Just flip, here's a better question to ask. Does this please the Lord? Does this please the Lord? Does that decision you're going to make, does that relationship you're in, does this, does this thing please the Lord? We're not just trying to get as close to sin without a cross in the line. We're trying to get as close to Jesus as we can. And so it's not just does this grieve the Spirit, but it's does this please the Spirit. And I think we'd make a whole lot better decisions if we just asked that question. If our filter was not, is this sin? Can I find a loophole in the Bible to make me feel okay about doing this? But does this actually please the Lord? Here's another good question. Um, Will what I'm about to say build others up? Because that's the parameter. He says, only let no corrupt talk Come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Is this going to give grace to people? Is this going to build people up? Is this going to help people? Is this going to encourage people? That's a good filter for our language. All right, final thing, and then we'll close. Um, 
Replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. And he kind of goes on this little list here. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So put those things off and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So we're to put off bitterness and rage and we're to replace it with kindness and forgiveness. See, the old self was in competition with others and so I had to constantly put others down to build myself up and to make myself feel better. I was threatened by people and so I cut them down. But the new person um, is grateful for God's goodness and secure in my identity in Christ. And so because God has uh, forgiven me and been gracious to me, whenever I was a bonehead, I'm going to do that to others. Whenever I was offensive to him, whenever I grieved him, whenever I hurt him, he forgave me. You know the Bible says that kindness leads to repentance? It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And So how can I show kindness to someone and forgive them? What would it actually look like if we put off the old self and put on the new? What would that look like in your life? Now, I know today was kind of big. It's like this is a lot to absorb. But the idea is this. Although there's these, he just gives these examples of how this putting off and putting on affects our lives practically, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but man, what is the one thing that maybe God is speaking to you about? What is the one thing that he's saying, maybe put this off? I don't want you to leave here and feel overwhelmed by the amount of things that we're supposed to get rid of and put on. Like, maybe just right now, just reflect on what's the one thing. What's the one thing in my life that right now, I believe the Spirit of God is working on each of us a little bit differently. And what's the one thing in my life that God's calling me to put off? That he's saying, don't do that anymore. And you might have to wake up every day and say, I'm not doing that today. I'm not saying that today. I'm not thinking that today. I'm going to put it off. And then what's one thing that he's asking you to put on? Maybe he's wanting you to grow in kindness or forgiveness. Maybe he's wanting you to grow in edifying talk. Maybe he's wanting you to grow in your honesty. Like what's the one thing that he's calling you to put on? Maybe he's wanting you to grow in uh, uh, righteous anger and putting off unrighteous anger. What's the one thing? That's what I want you to, and right now, like maybe you need to write it down. Maybe you need to make a note. Maybe you need to make a note in your Bible, in this passage, in your Bible, say, I'm putting off this. I'm going to put on this. Or maybe it's taking a note in your phone or setting a reminder in your alarm. And I don't know what it is. Look, I don't want us to just leave here and say, man, we heard another sermon that was way too long. I don't want us to, to do that. I want us to leave here and say, man, what's the one thing God's calling me to put off and what's the one thing I can put on this week? to begin to walk in the identity that I already have secured in Christ. Would you close your eyes with me and bow your heads? And Father, I just thank you for the moments that we're able to share in your scripture and in your word. And and, um, Lord, I just pray that, um, Lord, your word would not return void, but accomplish the purposes for which it was sent. And I believe that, that that your word is going to work in us as we leave here. And maybe in subtle ways, that, that your spirit is going to begin to convict us and catch us on things maybe we've never noticed before. But I pray that we'd be committed. If we follow you, Jesus, if we call you our Lord, that we'd be committed to begin to learn to live in this new identity, to put off our old way of life, and to put on this new way of life. I pray that you'd speak to every person individually, about the one thing that you're calling them to put off and the one thing that you're asking them to put on. I pray for testimony of life change. Lord, if there's someone in the room or watching online who's never trusted you for salvation, I pray that your spirit would guide them in surrendering to you right now as they turn from their old life and turn to you, Jesus. pray they confess to someone today 
that Jesus is Lord of their lives. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hey, if you made a decision, if you want to be baptized like Brittany was today and, and make that decision or, uh, or get connected or maybe you've trusted Christ for the first time today, go to bayoutala.com slash connect. Let us know of the decision you've made. We'd love to pray for you and help you take your next steps. Well, church, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. May He turn His face toward you and give you peace. Love you, church. I'll see you next week.